So 1 Corinthians, we're going to be in chapter 11, verses 2 to 16. 1 Corinthians 11, 2 to 16. And it says this, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Since it is the same as if she, uh, if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and the glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, someone, uh, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to uh, God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, uh, nor do the churches of God. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful that scripture is faithful to encourage us and strengthen us. God, we are also thankful that even from a passage like this, you speak plainly to us about who we are and who you are. God, I pray for uh, your grace and your mercy as we speak through this text. I pray for your Holy Spirit to uh, guide and direct this message. Lord, that your word would be heard clearly and plainly. God, we thank you for the opportunity is to come to your word and be changed by it, to be challenged by it, be transformed by it, be encouraged by it, be brought together by it. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we are dealing with the topic of, of head coverings. Which is, which is your favorite topic, I'm sure. It's my favorite topic, especially uh, after reading uh, some of the commentary and notes on things this morning. Uh, chiefly the notes that often said to us that this is one of the most difficult passages for interpreters who give their lives to the scholarly study of the text to interpret. Even they are saying this is difficult for us to understand not because the concepts are difficult to understand, but the language is just not clear for us. And we'll see that as we walk through the text this morning. Um, so I'm, one, I'm titling this message, Freedom Has a Context. And I'm doing that uh, because I think that's the chief message that is trying to be 
gotten across through this message that is that our freedoms, our freedoms to do the things that we do, to operate in the way that we do, are within a context. That is, we've said it a number of times throughout our series in Corinthians that freedom is not the same as autonomy, right? Autonomy is operating in whatever way you want, despite what anyone thinks about it, uh, and not being judged or or uh, given any rule or instruction by anyone else. That's autonomy. You function completely autonomous of all things. You do things as you want. That's autonomy. Freedom, however, freedom has a context. Freedom has a context. We can look at our country and we, we celebrate freedom, right? Uh, often, you know, we shoot fireworks off on July 4th. We do all sorts of things uh, to celebrate and honor freedom as a concept. But that freedom has a context, right? What's the context of our freedom in America? You know, truthfully, it's that many soldier, many a soldier has died on our behalf that we could have, that we could stand in a freedom, right? So that freedom that we operate in has a context, and that context is to respect those who have given their lives that we could walk in a particular freedom. This is true not only on that national level, but also uh, on an individual level in all sorts of relationships that we have. So if you look at the relationships of like a dad or a husband or a friend, uh, there are relational freedoms that exist, but those freedoms exist within a context. So a dad, right? As a dad, I'm free. Like there's no legal restriction on me to work instead of playing with my kids, right? Like I'm actually free to do that. That's a choice that I am, I, I'm free to make. I can work, you know, be a workaholic and not pay any attention to my kids, Right? I could do that. That would not be a good thing for my kids, right? That would be a very negative thing for my kids if the decision I made was to operate out of my freedom and always work and never come and play, right? My freedom as a dad has a context. I have children that, that I am responsible for raising and, and teaching and, and loving and demonstrating and just simply playing with. My freedom has a context, and that is my children. Same way a husband, right? A husband is, he's actually free. There's no legal restriction. It's a choice that he is able to make to like play video games all the day, right? And not spend any time with his wife. Like he, he could do that, right? He's free to do that. No legal restriction against that, right? He could do that. But would that be good for marriage? You know, if like every day after, you know, husband comes home from work, he gets down, uh, gets in down in front of the TV and totally ignores wife over there. Would that be a good thing? No, his freedom to do that has a context. That is his marriage. Uh, the same is true in friendships, right? fact is, I have a freedom to share any information that is given to me with anyone else that I want. But if a friend comes to you and says, hey, like, this is something I want you to keep between you and I, you know, keep this together, you know, keep it on the down low, all that, you know, if, if that's what they say to you and then you go spout it off to some friend, yeah, you're free to do that, sure, but you're a bad friend, right? Your freedom has a context. Um, it goes even as extreme in our culture as, did you know that in, in most states, it's actually not illegal to uh, commit adultery? Like if you commit adultery in most states, it's actually not a crime or, or a criminal offense of any kind. It's not any legal thing. You're actually free, as far as the law is concerned, to commit adultery. Isn't that sort of like mind-blowing? There's like 23 states that have any sort of legal restriction on that type of behavior. You're actually free to do that. But your freedom 
has a context, a commitment and a covenant that you have made to another individual to be there for that individual at all times and not to share that intimacy with someone else. And so our freedom has a context. And so I believe that our passage today um, is about that very thing. You know, as I read it, you were like, probably heard in your mind, head coverings, head coverings, head coverings, head coverings, head coverings. <laughs> What's he going to say? Head the truth is, I believe this passage is saying that our freedom has a context. So that's what I want you to hear this morning. We're free to do a lot of things uh, which uh, do not honor our relationships, okay? We have freedom to do a lot of things, but those things don't necessarily honor our relationships, And one thing our passage definitely talks about is honoring proper relationships. So our context today for talking about freedom uh, is this, that head coverings uh, should be worn on women during their prayer and prophecy within the church. Okay, that's what Paul is stating to the Corinthian church. And so step back and we'll walk through this. What we know for sure is that Paul is saying that to the church in Corinth. And there's a big question as to whether he is also saying that to us in America or not. I'll lay my cards on the table and say, I don't think he's saying that. Otherwise, I would have brought head coverings for you all to wear during prayer and things. Uh, I am not interpreting the passage that, that direction. Um, but our context is that very statement, that Paul has told the Corinthian women that in their prayer and in their prophecy, they ought to cover their heads uh, during that time. And I think it'll be pretty explicit for you that that's actually what he's saying to them. And I hope that it will also be explicit that that's probably not what he's saying to us. Okay? And so we'll work work through that. All right. So verse 2 of chapter 11 says this, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. This is a little like, you know, we've got all these mini-series within Corinthians. This is another introduction to a mini-series in Corinthians. For the next uh, chapter 11 to chapter 14, we're going to be talking about operation within the church service, okay? Proper operation within the church service. So today we're talking about head coverings. Next week we're talking about the Lord's Supper. The following couple of weeks, three weeks, I'm not sure how long it's going to take us, we're talking about the use of spiritual gifts within the church service. And then we'll finally wrap up with talking about the actual order, an orderly service, putting together an orderly service. Uh, so that'll be chapter 11 to, 11 to 14, and Paul is signaling that in verse 2 of our text today. Uh, so then he jumps into our first point, and there's going to be three sort of, um, sort of movements that Paul walks through during this passage. The first one is in verses 3 to 6, the second is verses 7 to 12, and then finally verses 13 to 16. Uh, we'll wrap up our text. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, verses 2 to 16 is the overall passage. And the first argument that I'm working in through is uh, verses 3 to 6. So, verse 3 to 6 says this, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of every wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut it short, 
but since it's disgraceful for a wife to cut her off her hair or shave her head, let her just cover her head. Okay, so the plain statement from those verses is that Paul is telling the Corinthian women that, listen, if you don't cover your head while you pray or prophesy, it is equated to shaving your head or cutting it short. And both of those uh, means of treatment of your hair in this context are disgraceful to you. And so you probably just ought to cover your head in respect of your head. So there's a lot of uh, talking about the, the head here, and I want to line out something real quick. Uh, verse 3 gives us sort of a, a picture of um, who we are to honor, and verse 4 and six, four to 6 give us a, a little breakdown of, of the particular issue. So again, verse 3 says this, Understand that the head of every man is Christ. Okay? So the one I am to honor as man is Jesus, right? He is the one. He is my head. I submit to Jesus. That's who I, I am submission to is to Jesus. That's my head. The head of the wife is her husband. The wife, in the context of how Paul explains it in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 and following, is that the wife submits to her husband. He is, his, uh, he is her head. Okay? He is the one that she submits to and honors. Um, and finally, the, the head of Christ is God. And so the question is, is man honoring Christ? Is wife honoring her husband? Is Christ honoring God? Well, yes, that's a given. But Paul is just lining out. Christ shows us that we are to honor the head. And the head is God. And Christ does that perfectly. And so in the same way, uh, man is to honor Christ and woman is to honor her husband, okay? So this is the framework that they're setting up. And so in verses four to six, when Paul says, every man, uh, when he prays or prophesies, should not cover his head during prayer and prophecy, is saying he is dishonoring Christ in doing so, okay? His head. And in the same way, for the woman, where it says, but every wife who prays and prophesies with her head, her head uncovered, uh, dishonors her head, which is her husband, okay? Uh, you sort of get where he's going with that. He's, by, by uncovering her head, she is dishonoring her husband, okay? This is the cultural context that we're trying to grapple with. And, and the truth is that we have a lot of questions about what Paul is actually talking about. There's debate in all sorts of ways about, is he actually talking about a physical head covering? And is it a covering that covers the entire head or just part of the head? And is it a covering that like maybe flows down over portions of the body? Or is it that she pins up her hair actually is one interpretation? So we actually have very little evidence as to the specific practice that Paul is actually speaking about. What we do know is that some of the Corinthian women are doing something with the covering on their head. And I think the best evidence is for it to actually be a physical external covering they are doing something uh, dishonorable to their husbands during the church service and something that is a deliberate action. So it's not accidental. They don't like walk into service and, oh, I forgot to put my head covering. It's like, no, I'm taking it off or I'm, uh, I'm deliberately coming in without it. And by doing so, they're dishonoring their husbands in that. Okay, So that's what we know. We know that the Corinthian women in some way, are coming into service and breaking down the distinction uh, between husband and wife during their prayer service, doing something that is dishonorable 
in, in their actions. So that's what, we, uh, that's what we know for sure. Um, a man dishonors Christ by covering his head in prayer and prophecy. A woman dishonors her husband and even potentially her church leaders by uncovering or not covering her head. Uh, and not covering your head in this culture would be the same as the woman shaving off her head or cutting it uh, short in a way which the culture would say is just simply disgraceful. Okay, so that's, that's the, the first point that Paul is making here is that this action that, that the Corinthian women are taking deliberately is dishonoring toward their husbands and leaders within the church. So that's what we know, okay? Uh, let me read this, uh, this statement from Gordon Fee, who's one of the commentators that I read through during Corinthians, and he says this, the issue directly tied to a cultural shame that scarcely permits in most cultures today, that scarcely permitted in most cultures today. We simply do not know the exact practice that these women were abusing, uh, which makes literal obedience to this text merely symbolic. So what he's saying there is that the practice that these women are engaging in, we have no such uh, connection to at all. Like we don't have any connection to it. We actually don't know exactly what it is. And so if we literally try to obey this is a head covering, we actually don't know that that's what it is. And so if we're trying to literally obey it, we're actually doing it in a symbolic manner because we actually don't know how to obey it. And so the Bible is not explicit in exactly how it should be, uh, it should be obeyed. Therefore, uh, literal obedience to it is only symbolic to, to the practice itself. So we see the clear issue. The clear issue is that the Corinthian women are doing something dishonorable to their husbands and to the leaders of the church by potentially uncovering their heads or doing something with the covering in their heads. That, uh, that, is, that is really what we know for sure. So moving on to verses 7 to 12, we see Paul take, a, uh, a different, uh, take up a different frame of, of argumentation and frame of discussion. In verses 7 to 12, he talks about uh, this fact, like we mentioned earlier, that the context of a woman's authority, that there is a context to a woman's authority and freedom in what she does, okay? So Paul is acknowledging that the woman and the wife have a freedom and authority to operate in, but that freedom and authority has a context under which it operates, right? Just like we talked about at the beginning of the service, all of our actions have a context. I might be free in some states to commit adultery according to the law, but my commitment to my relationship says that I ought not get involved with that, okay? So I may have freedom, quote, to do that, but I ought not engage in that because that is dishonoring the relationship that I have engaged in. So uh, we know that much. Verses 7 to 12 is explaining to us what is the context of a woman's freedom, specifically in relation to what she's doing with her hair. So verse 10 is really the crux of the issue for us. Verse 10 is where uh, a lot of people look at this passage and say, that clearly is saying that this passage says uh, that the woman ought to have an external covering over her hair. Okay, verse 10. So if you look at verse 10 briefly, um, verse 10 says this, that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority upon her head, on her head, because of the angels. Okay, that's the central issue between verses 7 to 12 is this is the reason, that is what is before this 
passage is the reason that, uh, uh, that the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. That is because of the angels and a few other things. So Paul is going to argue here from the context of the created order uh, what the woman's freedom and authority is. Now the translation here in, in pretty much every English translation that you look at, the traditional translation, um, interprets these two words, two Greek words. So this is, I, don't, I rarely jump into Greek exegesis here, but it's very important for this case, okay? There are two words in Greek, epi exousia, okay? Epi means, uh, means upon, okay? Or to, and, uh, and exousia means authority, okay? So in your text here, you see uh, that the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. And the use of that, those two words in the traditional understanding of it to try and make sense of the passage traditionally uh, is to say that the woman ought to have this authority upon her head. Okay, and it's called a passive use of these verbs. You might have heard that from your grammar days, like vaguely about this. You know, it's a passive use of the, of the verb. The problem with uh, interpreting those two words in a passive manner is that we have zero evidence of those words being interpreted in a passive manner ever in any other context. There is no evidence of them being interpreted that way in a grammatic sense at all. And so what is being done is in the translations we have, we're looking at the context and saying, it looks like he's talking about head coverings. This surely means that the authority should be on her head. And so that's what it's been traditionally interpreted as. What I'm putting before you today uh, is is what I've read uh, this week in my study of, of this passage, um, is that that actually should have an active interpretation. So that instead of saying that the woman ought to have authority upon her head, meaning in context uh, a head covering, uh, that the woman ought to have authority, freedom, that is, to act, that she ought to possess it herself, okay? She has freedom to act. That freedom again, has a context for the reasons stated before and because of the angels and some other things, okay? There's a very, another complex piece of Greek at the beginning of that sentence that says, for this reason. And that statement says that what is to follow relates to not only what is behind this text, but also what is following this text, okay? So he's saying this statement is in the center of multiple reasons, does that make sense? Okay. So the statement that woman should have freedom and authority over her own, over her own head uh, is in the context of the reasons above and the reasons below. Okay. We're all sim- sort of on the same page, getting there a little bit. Okay. So um, <clears throat> Gordon Fee again says this, this is the crucial text and it's so difficult that it has defied our best scholarly guesses uh, over the centuries. Okay? This is a very difficult text to understand, and this is really the crux of the matter. So again, if we're going to look at this passage and say, yep, blankly apply it, everyone should wear head coverings, we are assuming a lot, okay? and we are just ignoring a very large debate that is very difficult and convoluted and isn't expressly stated. Um, and so, so what we're looking at here is actually that we ought to interpret this 
this passage as a woman ought to have freedom and authority over her own head rather than that authority be placed upon her head. Okay? The passive sense would be that the authority is placed upon her head, thus head covering, but the active normal sense is that she should have authority over her own head. Okay? So she should be able to act in freedom. Now again, this is why our passage is about freedom in context. Okay? Freedom in context. Because her freedom has a context, doesn't it? Her freedom to do whatever she wants with her hair, to cover it or to put a little thing on it or to cover it fully or to pin it up or whatever we decide that is, that deliberate action is, um, has a context. And that context is creation. Not only what we spoke about before, about honoring her husband, but also Paul starts in this passage to talk about creation. So he says that uh, for this reason, the woman ought to have freedom or authority over her head in respect of, that is, verses 7 to 9, that she was created from man and for man. Okay, look at verses 7 to 9. One of the reasons why the woman ought to have freedom over her head is the purpose that she was created for. Okay, she should be able to decide what she does because she was created with a specific purpose. And so she should have freedom to operate within that purpose. Okay. Verses 7 to 9 say this. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the very image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman was made from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Okay, so a couple of things, right? The woman was made from man. This is a direct uh, reference to the creation story. When God creates man and woman, he creates man, and then actually out of the rib of man, he creates woman for him. So the woman, in historical context of a biblical framework, the woman was made from man. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. That is a truth that we stand on from a biblical basis, that woman was made for man. I don't care. We can have a big debate about what creation was like, whether it was short or whether it was long, whether it was evolutionary or whether it was six days. You You can talk about that all you want, but the truth is that the Bible plainly shows us that man received the breath of life and then that God made woman out of man. Might be a hard thing to wrap your mind around, but that's what God tells us expressly and it's applied in various ways throughout the scripture. Woman was made from man. Eve came out of Adam. Okay, don't understand it, but that's the reality. Woman came from man. Second thing that we see here is that the reason that woman was created was for his man. Okay, you can take this, take this however you want, but God's creating his world, right? And he says, here's man. All right, man, do your job. Like, you know what? He's not quite fit to finish his job on his own. <laughs> he actually needs a woman really bad. Like, he is, he is not complete in himself. I've created man, and I've done so with an express purpose, but you know what? He needs a helper. He needs a helper. And so I'm going to create woman for man. This is not, and often this passage gets interpreted this way, which is wrong, this is not a subjugation of women to men at all. Paul will explain that very clearly here in a moment. Uh, This is a mutual relationship 
that is beautiful and distinct, that man has a particular role and that woman has another role. That that woman is serving the man and the man is serving the woman, that it's this relationship that is built upon a foundation of, of the created order. Okay, So the woman's freedom to act in the church service, how she acts, is in relation to who she was created for, for her husband. Not for just independent living, not for just doing whatever she pleases out of no context, but rather for the purpose God has created her for, for the men in her life, whether her husband or potentially even uh, leadership in the church or her father or whatever case that may be, to honor them and to help them because fact is they can't do it on their own. They might not admit it, but and we definitely wouldn't admit it because we're prideful. Men are typically very prideful. The truth is we need women to help us accomplish the purposes and roles that we have to do in life. The things that God has given us cannot be accomplished by man alone. They have to be helped by the woman. Okay? It's a mutual thing. It's a beautiful relationship that men and women, especially in the body of believers, have to hold and respect. Okay? So, uh, one reason that women ought to act uh, properly in this way uh, is because of uh, the created order. Another way is that they ought to, um, they ought to do this, they ought to have uh, this freedom, that is, to act as they will, because we believe that they are able to make good decisions in light of the role that they have been given. You know one of the roles that women, uh, female believers, have been given is to judge angels. Remember talking about that in chapter 6, verse 3 of 1 Corinthians? Paul tells us while he's talking about lawsuits between believers, he says, you Christians have lawsuits between another. Don't you know that in the end time, like you're going to judge angels? We have no idea what that looks like, okay? We, again, that's an area we don't have much text on, but Paul says it explicitly. In the end, don't you know that you're going to be able to judge angels, Okay? So if you're able to judge angels, don't you think you can like decide according to your context what you ought to do in a church service? Don't you think you have wisdom enough to make that decision? Yes, you have freedom and authority to operate in this context in a proper way because you've been endowed with wisdom as a believer that, that in the end times you will judge angels. Okay? That's what he's saying because of the angels, because you've got a role over the angels in the future a role that your wisdom is going to be able to judge. So because of the angels, you should have freedom to act as, as you ought to act. And that freedom ought to be in the context in which you are operating in. Um, the final thing that, that the woman's freedom in the church service ought to be in light of is uh, that, that man and women, uh, men and women are not dependent not independent of one another, that we are actually dependent on each other. And I've sort of alluded to that already, but look at verses 11 to 12. It says this, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, right? Eve came from Adam. So man now is born of woman. And all things are from God. So in the created order, you know, God sets up first man and then out of man, he takes woman to help him and from him and for him, right? But now, as you naturally look at the circumstance, man doesn't just pop out of the dust anymore. He actually comes through some pretty serious 
pain and affliction that a woman is enduring. A man comes from woman. Now, Paul's saying man and woman are no longer, they're not, they're not independent of each other. They're dependent on each other. Our very existence together in this world is dependent upon our relationships with each other. And those relationships ought to be honoring in both directions, okay? Man honoring woman and woman honoring man. So, uh, so Paul again is saying in verses 7 to 12 that yes, the Christian woman in the church service, she has freedom and authority to act. You know why he says that? Because uh, he knows that God has given them ability to judge the angels, okay? Even the angels, that's a pretty important responsibility, I would think. And he also knows uh, that the woman is not independent of man. They, they're to work together. And so the woman ought to have this ability and freedom to act. But he also is stating to them that that freedom is in a context, in a context of honoring the husband that you are uh, under and honoring the men in your life that you are also submitting to in some way. And so uh, this is why he says, in this cultural context of Corinth, doing this dishonorable action of taking off your head covering during prayer and, uh, and prophecy is dishonoring to those in whom you are submitting. It's saying, I don't think you have authority over me. I don't think you're important. I think I can operate as I want. I can do freely as I will. And Paul says, yeah, you can act freely. Yeah, you, you have total freedom to act uh, as you ought to act. But that freedom has a context. So you have to take note of what your relationships are and what your actions are doing. And so uh, that's what verses 7 to 12 and, and especially verse 10 uh, portray to us. Finally, Paul wraps up this passage in verses 13 to 15 saying this, Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Paul says, you know, just take a step back and judge this issue for yourselves. You're wise enough to do it. If, if it's disgraceful for a man to have long hair, and it's disgraceful for a woman to have short hair, then you ought to judge what you ought to do. So, uh, so Paul is playing that, that you should be able to judge from your own understanding of the issue whether it is right or not to wear a head covering or not. You should be able to make that decision well because you've been given an ability to interpret the nature and the wisdom based on your own understanding of things. Paul finally concludes with this uh, one statement that, hey, if you want to be contentious about this issue and like raise some issue, like you've got this freedom that you need to operate in, that's fine. But listen, none of our other churches in this time in the Mediterranean that have been established in this culture None of them have any other practice than to have the ladies submit to a covering over their heads out of honor to their husbands and of honor to the leaders of the church. This is what we practice in the culture. So please, don't be contentious. This is just, this is the way we honor one another. The fact is there are lots of like things we do that like we just do out of honor and respect. You know, some churches, and I always sort of look at this and like, 
that's weird. I'd never do that. That's ridiculous. Uh, is that some churches, they'll have like a parking spot for pastor. You know that? Have you ever seen a church that has pastor, pastor Williams parking spot right there? You know, that's where pastor Williams parks, you know? I'm always like, come on, it's the priesthood of all believers. We should just all have, you know, parking spots and, you know, it doesn't matter where I park. I, I, I should actually park in the very back and blah, blah, blah. You know what? Actually, that's like an honoring thing. You know, the, the pastor probably didn't like, in, in a lot of cases, when that or, originated, he probably wasn't like, you know what? I need the front space because I'm going to be there early, blah, 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 blah. Probably what happened in the origination of that parking spot was that the members were like, you know what? Let's honor pastor, you know? Don't park in the first spot. He's got to get there at 6 a.m. You know, get him there. Let him park in the first spot. Let's just designate that for him. You know, it was a matter of honor. Is it a matter that has to be blankly applied to every church? No. Is it a matter that was commanded from the text? No. Do some denominations maybe latch onto it and do that? Yeah, but that's wrong. Okay. Um, It's a matter of honor. The same way, like if you're having a meal at your house, right, typically, uh, the, the head of the household sits at the head of the table. So, like, if one of your kids jumps into the seat at the head of the table, generally, in a traditional setting, that would be, like, sort of dishonoring maybe, maybe dad's position. Like, this is actually, this is where dad sits, you know? He, he's the head of the household. That's where, where he ought to sit is at the head of the table. That's a, that would be a dishonoring thing, especially in a more traditional culture. Maybe right now we're sort of more loose on that these days. Uh, but if you go back 30, 40 years... You don't sit in dad, I mean, that's dad's spot. He sits at the head of the table. And to do anything otherwise would be dishonoring to your father. So we have all sorts of things like that, that, uh, that are dishonoring. I was talking to Sam about it this morning. I told him I didn't know if I was going to bring this up or not, but I think I'd feel weird if I came and preached in shorts. Anybody else feel weird if I came and like preached in shorts? Anyone? No? You guys are all good with it. You're hot. Okay, you're good. Oh, next, well, great. Next week I'll be in shorts. Um, you know, I've thought about that and thought, well, there's no restriction. I mean, it's Florida, it's hot in here. I need some shorts. But the truth is like, I feel weird preaching in shorts and I have zero basis for that. Just like, I just would feel weird to be up here in shorts preaching to you. And so, so I wore slacks even today. I went totally the opposite way. Usually I'm in jeans and now I'm in slacks dressed to the nines. And then, then Socrates came in earlier in like this fresh suit, you know, and I'm like, oh, I'm never going to reach that level, you know. Uh, so, uh, but you know, I, again, is there any text that says, man, pastors need to wear pants, you know? No, there isn't, but it just sort of feels like that's the right thing to do, okay? And so that's what we're dealing with here in this passage, is that these ladies are really offending their husbands and the leaders of the church by taking on this practice of saying, you know what, we can be free and do whatever we want. You know, that's great, but your freedom, your freedom has a context. And so you need to pay attention to who you are honoring or dishonoring in the actions you take. It's not just you autonomously sort of existing and doing whatever you want because it's, quote, legal. You know, because if you, if you apply the legal standard to your behavior, you could do a lot of things, right? Um, so we know this, okay, that some Corinthian women were being contentious about wearing their head covering during prayer and prophecy for sure, and we're not sure if anything else, but definitely during prayer and prophecy while they were praying and prophesying. And we know that this was dishonorable to their husbands and their church leaders. 
Uh, and that's the extent of what we know. That's it. We just know they were taking dishonorable action in regard to something on their head. Uh, and, and that's all we can be certain about. So how do we, what do we go with then as a church today? What do we, what do, we do with that, right? Well, it's pretty simple actually for us. Uh, we ought to be sure that our actions do not bring shame upon those who we ought to honor. Okay? So my actions shouldn't bring shame upon my wife. Her actions shouldn't bring shame upon me. Your actions shouldn't bring shame upon your pastor. Your actions shouldn't bring shame upon your husband or your, your father. Your actions shouldn't bring shame upon your mother. Okay? And those things, you might be, quote, free to do them legally or what have you. You might have freedom, but that freedom has a context that we need to operate out of for the honor of those around us. So we should be sure that our actions honor the order that God has set up in his creation for us. Let's go ahead and pray. God, we are so thankful for this text. Uh, At the beginning of this week, I probably wouldn't have prayed that prayer, but I am now. Lord, I am thankful that you clearly portray to us that there is an order that you have set up in this life for your good and your glory, and that in our actions, we ought to operate in such a way to honor what you have set up. We ought not blur the lines of, uh, of man and wife in some way, but rather we should honor the order that you have set up. We should honor our wives. Our wives should honor husbands. We should honor our father and our mother. We should honor Christ for what he has accomplished in our lives. We know that Christ has honored you. We know this because he laid down his life for you on the cross. He was free to take control of the whole earth. He had the power to do it, yet he laid himself down for you, for us, that we might be uh, reconciled to you. And so, God, we pray that our actions would, would honor Christ in that way, that we would lay down ourselves and not be contentious about things that are dishonorable to one another, but rather that we would honor you in all of our actions, irrespective of what the law may say, what we may be free to do, that we would understand our freedoms have a context, and that we would respect that context, whatever it may be. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.